The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. They're already um, trying to get their defense economy more online so that they can produce more shells, produce more missiles. Um, They're getting uh, the legal mechanisms ready for a, a better and bigger, more efficient mobilization if they need to go to that well again. So, you know, Russia's playing for time. They want time. Um, Ukraine, I think, is acutely, Ukrainian leadership is acutely aware that, um, and I, I, it seems to me, looking at them, that they feel pressure to show progress. Like, not that anyone's pressuring them, but that they, they want to continue to demonstrate progress and stay in the news so that people won't forget about them and move on. And that's, you know, partially from experience, like nine years ago, that they had. So... Um, there's a lot of different factors, and I think in the, the months ahead, all the way up to November of 24, we're going to start to see different types of political influences coming here in a stronger way on, on battlefield decisions and potentially battlefield outcomes. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for September 25th, 2023. For the past several months, Ukraine has been engaged in a grinding counteroffensive aimed at retaking lost territory from Russian invaders. Last week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky joined President Biden for the UN General Assembly meeting in New York to make the case for continued support of Ukraine's efforts, a message they then repeated to members of Congress considering whether to move forward a much-needed aid package. To discuss the state of the Ukraine counteroffensive and where it sits in the broader political context, I sat down with two leading experts. Eric Charmella and Dara Masco, both of whom are senior fellows in the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We discussed the state of the counteroffensive, how Zelensky's pitches in New York and D.C. went, and where the conflict seems likely to head in the next phase. It's the Lawfare Podcast for September 25th, an update on Ukraine. Daryl, before we get into the week's events in New York, let's start with you for the last several months' events in Ukraine. We have seen the Ukrainian military involved for several months now as part of a much-discussed counteroffensive aimed at reclaiming those vestiges of territory that remain in Russian hands, substantial portions of the eastern part of the country, a much talked about effort to kind of disconnect Crimea, strategically kind of cut off different lines of Russian support by reclaiming stripes of territory. Tell us about the state of this counteroffensive, where it is now, and how far along we are to get a sense of how successful it has or has not been so far. 
Well, thanks so much for having me. The offensive started in June, so now we're looking at month three of this. Um, on the ground, the Ukrainian forces are trying to push forward, I think probably trying to drive, to drive close to the Sea of Azov so they can cut off that land bridge to Crimea. Um, it is a hard fight. The Russians have multiple kilometers of minefields. They are actively shelling Ukrainian forces who are trying to advance. Um, the Ukrainians do not have air superiority in this fight. So it has been um, something that they've had to change their tactics. Um, early on, if you all remember, when this started in June, um, there were a lot of videos that were being released about Ukrainian um, equipment being destroyed, and you know, the Russians were trying to promote that narrative. After that, the Ukrainians switched tactics because they had to, and they started using infantry teams to try to move forward and cut through these minefields and clear the mines. So that is what's been happening on the ground for about three months. Um, in terms of uh, progress there, um, there was a lot of excitement this week um, down in Zaporizhia. The Ukrainians have been able to push forward and actually break through one of the um, three main defensive belts near a town called Verbovia near Robotine. And this is significant because they haven't had the ability to do that before, where they can actually breach that really hard spot and get behind it and then add infantry into it. But just to you know, set you know, expectations of, of what that means, um, essentially we're looking at an eight kilometer or 10 kilometer advance over the span of three months. So to me, it's, you know, just, it's just about setting expectations that this is extremely, extremely dangerous what they're doing um, and measuring it based on speed or slowness is, is maybe not the right metric. I would, I would offer that, you know, measuring the state of ammunition is, is the right metric. Tell us a little bit about why ammunition is the thing to measure and how we should be thinking about it in, in terms of that scale. What is the right metric we should be thinking about this on? Sure. Um, you know, the, the, we have a pretty good picture now of the amount of force that the Ukrainians had um, at the beginning of the counteroffensive in terms of, you know, uh, you know, multiple brigades, you know, somewhere around 10, 10 brigades that were um, largely from Western stocks. And um, it's unfortunately not a conversation where there's a lot of reliable data points. But the question that I have is, you know, have they gone through a lot of their shells and a lot of their munitions that were budgeted for this counteroffensive already? Because that will determine how much farther that they can push. You know, have they expended um, 70, 80 percent? Um, have they expended only a minority percentage of you know, their stockpile? And I just don't have those numbers. So it's really hard for me to, to forecast how much farther that they can go with what they have on hand. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Very useful. So let's go, let's talk a little bit about some of these other recent developments. Uh, I know in the last few weeks, we've heard about a major strike on Black Sea headquarters for the Russian fleet. Um, we've seen a couple other of peripheral actions. We've seen more drone strikes in Moscow and a few other actions. What are the other fronts of this fight in addition to this slow slog along the counteroffensive line? That's, that's the slow reclaiming of territory. Well, I think the the strike game down in the Black Sea Fleet area is really interesting, and I just want to put a few data points out. This is really a systemic strike plan to go after the Black Sea Fleet, in particular its ability to launch cruise missiles against Ukraine. Um, and here's, here's what they've done in the past month. Um, you had a month ago, they started attacking Russian long-range air defense systems. 
you had seven days ago, they attacked another SA-20 battery and they knocked out two ships that were actually in the dock. One of them was a Kilo submarine that's capable of launching those caliber sea launch cruise missiles. And, um, you know, just sort of a, you know, a landing ship or tank is what they call it. But um, losing that submarine and losing its strike capability is just another uh, a way that they can diminish the Black Sea Fleet's ability to launch against them. There aren't that many ships in the Black Sea Fleet. Two days ago, they attacked an airfield and they attacked a command post in the Black Sea. And then yesterday, or this morning, excuse me, they attacked the headquarters. So this is really a systemic um, strike plan to go after that fleet. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's really interesting to watch. Um, beyond that, um, for the last you know, several months, we've been seeing these drone strikes farther into Russia, um, factories and other facilities going up in flames w- well inside Russia, um, and the Russian authorities' response to that is to try to downplay it and just say, well, you know, let's, let's move forward. I mean, it's very, you know, they're trying to manage the public response to that very tightly. How is the Russian side of this equation being managed? Of course, we saw, you know, the very dramatic events around Bakhmut a few months ago, which led fairly directly into the brief uprising by um, the now late Mr. Pergozin um, and the Wagner kind of mercenary corps, which is now being disbanded or kind of severed up and, and handed out to different parts of kind of r- the Russian affiliation, but doesn't seem as directly involved with Ukraine at this point anyway, since that last kind of Bakhmut wave. How is Russia doing in terms of maintaining its own positioning in the conflict? Is this a case where they have simply dug in and have hardened positions and it's hard to dislodge them? Um, or is there a are they approaching a point where they are going to be very hard pressed to maintain even the status quo? Uh, so let me let me break that into two two parts. Um, if we look at the aftermath of this rebellion, um, we look at how um, Wagner leadership was decapitated um, in that plane crash over Russia. There are some recent rumors this week that remnant or rump parts of Wagner, some of its fighters may be um, being asked to return to Ukraine in some capacity. We know their tent camp in Belarus has been struck. So it'll be important to watch where those fighters go uh, because Russia desperately needs uh, skilled fighters right now on the front line. And when Wagner exited stage left this summer, the Russian airborne forces, which are the kind of the last bastion of skilled labor, skilled fighters on the Russian Ministry of Defense's books, they have to absorb that gap. Right now, they've just recently uh, taken most of those units, moved them away from Bakhmut, and they're putting them in uh, Zaporizhia near Robotyne to try to you know, um, counter what's happening um, down the, the Ukrainian progress down there. So the other side of the equation is General Servikin. Uh, he was uh, exiled to Algeria or other parts of Africa for related military tasks. We don't really know yet what he's doing, but he was one of the wartime's uh, deputy commanders, was once the overall commander until there was some kind of personality conflict between him and Grasimov and Shoigu. By benching him, he's the architect of Russia's defensive network. So the defensive network is complex and it's still there in being, but it's being managed by people, not particularly to the most optimal way to, to manage that network. But, you know, just to conclude, yes, they're dug in. 
and they're hiding not only in trenches, but in tree lines. It's very complicated um, for the UAF to get through it. So this is the background against which we saw President Volodymyr Zelensky join our president, President Biden, um, along with most of his senior advisors and many of Biden's senior advisors in New York this week for the UN General Assembly meeting. There we saw two pretty notable addresses squarely centered on the Ukraine conflict, first by Biden, then by Zelensky. Eric, tell us a little bit about what role the UN General Assembly meeting and these very public addresses has played in the strategy for building, or at least attempting to build, a degree of continued momentum behind the counteroffensive, behind Ukraine's actions? Where does it fit into the strategic picture here? Uh, thanks, Scott. So, you know, you're right that uh, Zelensky's visit to the United States, first to New York for the UN General Assembly and uh, an address to the Security Council, and then in Washington yesterday you know, is is taking place against this backdrop of a very slow grinding counteroffensive, as well as complicated, you know, political dynamics in the United States that, that we'll discuss in a minute. But, you know, Zelensky's trip to New York was primarily intended to explain Ukraine's diplomatic strategy to the rest of the world uh, amid concerns from many parts of Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and, and South and Southeast Asia about kind of the costs of a long protracted war. And so what Zelensky was trying to do in his address was to, you know, shore up global support uh, for his 10-point peace plan, you know, which just is a basic, you know, set of uh, assertion of principles upon which um, the Ukrainian government believes this uh, just and lasting peace and end to the conflict should be built. And it comes after a series of diplomatic engagements that the Ukrainians have had, um, you know, coordinated very closely with the United States and, and Ukraine's allies in Europe, uh, first in Copenhagen and then in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, around this peace plan. And again, the, the, the main audience is not really to preach to the converted in the West and Ukraine's allies in East Asia, like Japan and South Korea. They're already on board with the peace plan. Zelensky was really trying to reach India, Brazil, South Africa, so on and so forth. And so what he talked about in his speech was, you know, how Russia is weaponizing everything and, um, you know, immiserating parts of the world by basically turning Ukraine's, as he said, using Ukraine's land and people and turning them into weapons against the rest of the world and the principles of the UN Charter. He talked about food security and Russia's um, efforts to, you know, blockade Ukrainian grain and degrade Ukrainian uh, port infrastructure and ability to export grain to the world, Russia's weaponization of energy, including nuclear, uh, you know, power and the potential for that to be sort of weaponized further into, you know, even a dirty bomb or something like that. And then, um, you know, Russia's war on, on Ukraine's people and particularly the, the abduction and mass deportation of Ukrainian children, you know, which he called very directly a genocide. And so, you know, again, I don't, I don't interpret this speech as, as a turning point, but rather kind of the biggest stage um, so far that Zelensky has taken this message to that the Ukrainian, you know, diplomatic corps and Zelensky's advisors have been developing now for the past six to 12 months, which is, you know, basically Ukraine doesn't want a war either, um, but we can't stop fighting. And when we're talking about, you know, hypothetical negotiations in the future, which some in, in parts of the world are calling for, 
thinking that there's some easy solution, Zelensky is saying, well, again, we need to respect the principles of the UN Charter, which comes down to, you know, sovereignty, territorial integrity, and all these things that you guys talk about, um, you know, when you assert, you know, your loyalty to the UN Charter principles, you need to apply them in our case, too. It's something I thought was notable, which was interesting in listening to these two addresses or reading them, I should say, as as I did not actually get an opportunity to listen to them, is that President Biden's remarks did strike a bit broader. He talked, spent a lot of time talking about issues ranging from uh, food security, not which obviously has a clear nexus to Ukraine, but also climate change, also Security Council reform, and bringing them all back to Ukraine to some extent, or at least tying it to the United States support to Ukraine as an indicator of support and concern as well for these things and trying to link those issues. Who is the audience for those sorts of issues, those concerns at the UN? You know, why have those made their way into Biden's remarks and, and what nexus does that have to this Ukraine effort? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a real concern in, in large parts of the world that, uh, there's sort of a double standard here that, you know, when there's been, war and destruction in Europe, you know, the United States and and European allies have jumped to provide, you know, more than $100 billion and uh, all their diplomatic support. But then when there are other existential issues in parts of the world, whether it's, you know, famine, drought, war, climate change, so on and so forth, the sort of effort by the United States and the wider West is, you know, leaves much to be desired. And so I think Biden was trying to you know, sort of bridge those gaps and explain how, you know, this is part of a broader strategy and the United States, you know, is not only focused on, you know, what's going on in Europe's backyard, but is also really cares deeply about these other issues, like you mentioned, climate and so on and so forth, to try to, again, appeal to those countries. In my view, you know, I'm not sure it, it really lands because I think a lot of these countries are going to want to see what this means concretely. And does it come with, you know, substantial additional aid? Um, does it come with, you know, really ambitious initiatives uh, along the lines of what we've seen come out of Washington regarding Ukraine to fight some of these other challenges? But this is a, you know, it's a really delicate kind of balancing act for President Biden to explain, like, you know, we're supporting Ukraine because this is a, this is a core security interest and it should be for the rest of you um, who care about the UN system, but then we're also doing enough on these other issues when, you know, in fact, it, it doesn't quite look that way um, to a large part of the world. And for the sake of completeness, I do think we have to mention the Russian response, which took place the next day, if I recall correctly. I know President Zelensky stepped out of the room for the Russian response, but obviously still was heard by a good part of the General Assembly. How do they respond to these allegations? How did they continue to frame the conflict for the international community. And do you have a sense about where the narratives are falling? Like, have we seen any sign of movement coming out of this weekend in terms of how people might be perceiving or understanding the conflict? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same narratives you you hear from the Russians and that you've heard from them since the start of the invasion about how, you know, we, Russia, are fighting a just defensive war against, you know, Western encroachment, and it was the West and NATO that provoked this war and so on and so forth. Um, again, I, I don't see much novel in their pushback. And, you know, I will say the narratives about, you know, who's to blame for the war and, you know, was it about NATO enlargement and all of that, that, that is sort of complicated in parts of the world where there is sort of baked in skepticism of 
NATO and, you know, the Western alliance and U.S. hegemony and so forth. So I do think that's, you know, a big part of the reason why Russia is still sort of touting this narrative. Um, you know, you look to places like Brazil and, you know, there is a, a strong domestic constituency to kind of, that kind of agrees with this logic that, you know, the United States is too big for his britches and was pushing into Russia's backyard and, and so on. So again, I don't think it, I don't think either Biden or Zelensky's intervention or the Russian pushback really changed anything. This is about much larger kind of structural disagreements that have persisted since the start of the invasion. So after the meeting in New York, Zelensky and his advisors did a, a pursued a long UNGA tradition, UN General Assembly tradition, which is they then went, you know, took the Amtrak corridor south to Washington, D.C. and did a series of major bilateral meetings with executive branch officials, but particularly in this case, most notably for the Ukrainians, members of Congress uh, and on Capitol Hill, coming less than a year after Zelensky's kind of dramatic speech to Congress that kind of rallied support for him uh, and for the war effort. Most media reports are reporting this as, as him having gotten a bit of a cooler reception by a number of members of Congress, in large part over the question of continued U.S. security assistance. Before we get into kind of the politics of that, Dara, let me turn back to you to start. Tell us a little bit about where the pipeline is on U.S. assistance to Ukraine and, and where it's likely to go over the next few months. Why, you know. What role is Congress being asked to step in and help fill? What are the, the forthcoming gaps? And, and how does that fit into the bigger international picture of, of the kind of assistance pipeline? Sure. Um, so there are a few things that are happening to support the Ukrainians um, on the ground for the rest of the year. Uh, Ukrainians are receiving depictums. This is a cluster munition. And the Biden administration has been very upfront that this is a bridging capability to continue to supply them with artillery shells until um, we ramp up our regular uh, production that will increase a little bit next year and will continue to increase in years to come. Uh, we are also keeping them supplied with air defense interceptor missiles. This is very important because the Russians are continuing to throw cruise and ballistic missiles at Ukraine. They just did another large salvo while Zelensky was at the UN. So this is really important to keep Ukrainian air defense systems firing, and particularly the Western variants is what I believe that we're supporting them on. The big rumor this week is attackums and whether or not the Biden administration will give attackums to Ukraine to bolster their longer range strike capabilities. And today, I'm not actually sure where that debate is. It seems to be shifting in, in the media every hour. So um, with the most recent rumor being that the Biden administration was considering giving them a small number. And in terms of what the kind of legislative ask is, you know, we are kind of approaching the end of the fiscal year. Um, a lot of different types of foreign assistance work on a, you know, generally annual kind of schedule or calendar, although that does fluctuate a little bit program to program. You know, what is the runway left or do you have a sense of where, what, how much runway is left on kind of the existing allotment of U.S. security assistance and what the big ask is? We, we just saw a big use of drawdown authority by the president that uh, provides a substantial chunk of assistance to Ukrainians kind of moving forward. But there's still this outstanding ask for additional of those assistance. That's a big focus of debate on Congress. Can you give us a sense about what's in that package and, and where it fits into the strategic picture? 
Well, um, you know, just looking at the battlefield, um, you know, Ukraine is, is going to need resupply of armored vehicles and they're going to need ammunition. So um, my understanding is that if there is a looming government shutdown, um, that could impact um, next fiscal year's requests. But right now, I think the Pentagon, um, I just saw before we came on the, the came on the show here, that they had exempted um, support to Ukraine um, from the shutdown so that you know, all the support that is currently in the pipeline right now, whether that's man hours, people working this job, you know, whatever, uh, that will continue regardless of whether the government is shut down. So, I mean, that's positive news in an otherwise um, not positive story. Yeah, I mean, I would just add, um, again, the main, the main sort of ask and the thing that's hanging in the balance right now is this supplemental budget request for uh, $24 billion you know, partly to replenish U.S. stocks, as I understand it, and then additional equipment for Ukraine in the next fiscal year when some of the monies that have already been appropriated uh, run out. And so, you know, this is kind of why Zelensky felt he needed to come uh, to Washington and meet in particular with Republican members of the House, where the concern is greatest that this supplemental package uh, will be held up by you know, the rebellion against McCarthy um, by sort of the, the far right caucus that is really opposed to Ukraine aid and that and that this supplemental is going to be held hostage to the broader political fight over the, the looming shutdown and funding of the U.S. government. And so, again, we'll, we'll see where that uh, ends up. But the challenge for Zelensky in coming here is, again, that it's it's partly about Ukraine, but it's really not about Ukraine. It's really our own uh, domestic political dysfunction. And so even sort of the the moral authority of having the Ukrainian leader here explaining, you know, a firsthand account of what his country is going through, you know, even if that moves some people on the Hill to want to pass this, it's still contingent, most likely on sort of this broader uh, political spat that's escalating. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You know, and, and that point about the domestic politics being tied in here is really interesting. You know, among the statements I've seen reacting to Zelensky's visit, we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene actually kind of flip a vote on moving forward with uh, defense authorization appropriations bill, um, which is kind of one of the major sticking points right now. And she essentially made a statement to the effect of, 
thousands of people are invading the United States every day. Defense Department isn't doing anything. We shouldn't spend money on Ukraine. Um, so shifting the conversation to immigration, um, one of kind of a handful of issues that people hit on and try and prioritize in a way that is to, to, to de-emphasize. Essentially, our, it's not an argument against Ukraine. It's just an argument about priorities and where exactly we should be spending money and resources. How have we seen Zelensky and, to some extent, the Biden administration push back on this? And and have we seen any sort of new strategy in this visit compared to the last visit, given that, you know, in small fits and starts, the more isolationist inclination, particularly in the Republican Party, although there are people of a similar inclination, parts of the Democratic Party as well, have been become at least a little more vocal um, and seem in part because of the very close nature of the House and because of the arrangements behind uh, Speaker McCarthy's speakership in a little bit more of a position to to wield influence now, maybe than they were uh, the last time we had the debate like this. It, has that led to any sort of change in tactics by the Ukrainians, by the Biden administration? Um, you know, from the Ukrainian side, I think that their their primary audience was not the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gaetzes of the world, uh, whom they realize, um, you know, they're never going to be able to persuade. Really, the audience was Kevin McCarthy and, you know, the key committee chairs that have been supportive of Ukraine, uh, you know, Mike Rogers on, on armed services, McCall on uh, foreign affairs, you know, Kay Granger on appropriations and so on, who have largely been supportive of, of the Ukraine packages that have passed over the past 18 months and essentially making the case to them of how urgent this is and how they need to sort of overcome the divisions in their own party to put this up for a vote, knowing that there is going to be an overwhelming vote of support in in the House when you consider that a large number of Republicans plus probably the entirety or close to the entirety of the Democratic caucus will vote in favor of this. And so, um, again, it's sort of, you know, without trying to interfere in the internecine, you know, disputes in the Republican Party just to sort of bolster the case that the supporters of Ukraine have in the party that we need to kind of hide this off from the broader dispute we're having over the funding of the government and just get this passed on a vote of conscience and we think it will pass handily. So again, we'll, we'll see if McCarthy is able to do that and willing to do that. He may get pressure from the Senate. I mean, we haven't talked about the Senate, but that was obviously a hugely different picture where Zelensky you know, was joined by Schumer and McConnell, and there's broad bipartisan support. I mean, that's really been sort of never in question in the Senate. But again, is the Senate going to try to move to box the House in and try to force their hand on some of this funding? And again, how does it play into this broader government shutdown debate that, you know, will reach sort of its apex next week? So I kind of want to shift conversation back now that we have a sense of the state of things on the ground in D.C., a little bit back to the ground in Ukraine, Derek, because it strikes me that while we have a sense of the state of the current state of the counteroffensive, there is a, a tension to some extent in that the counteroffensive is a slow going measure so far. And the politics around assistance for Ukraine, at least in the United States, but I think it, it is a, a arguably critical component of the overall international picture is becoming a little bit more complicated, not prohibitively yet, but a little more complicated. And of course, we have 2024 elections on the horizon um, where there is a a certainly substantial chance that you will see former President Trump return to the White House um, or perhaps somebody with a similar worldview that is not as likely to be supportive of assistance for Ukraine as the Biden administration has been. Have we begun to see 
or hear talk of steps to say where the counteroffensive will go in light of that, given that full execution seems unlikely to unwind on a timeline that fits that political schedule? Have we begun to hear contingency planning um, about different levels of assistance or in anticipation of different political outcomes? How are these political conversations manifesting and changes on the ground, or are we just not there yet? I don't think that the conversation is necessarily there yet. I certainly haven't heard any you know, direct links to you know, U.S. electoral cycles with you know, what we're planning on supporting Ukraine with. But I, I would note that this is Russia's goal is to stymie Ukrainian progress, not only to prevent them from breaching these lines, but also to drag this out for as long as possible so that there's no change on the ground, because then it starts to, you know, it, from this from the Russian perspective, what they want is for people in the West and governments in the West to feel like this is futile and that there's no way for the Ukrainians to succeed here. I mean, that's that's the Russian goal. And the longer this goes on, um, the more expensive that this becomes, the easier it becomes to start to have these conversations politically um, in certain you know governments, either here or in Europe. You know what what does victory look like? Which is a valid question. Can we attain it with what we can supply Ukraine with? What's the strategy to do this? Are these pieces linking up? Like those are appropriate questions to ask. Uh, but the Russians are going to try to play for time here. They're already um, trying to get their defense economy more online so that they can produce more shells, produce more missiles. Um, They're getting uh, the legal mechanisms ready for a a better and bigger, more efficient mobilization if they need to go to that well again. So Russia's playing for time. They want time. Um, Ukraine, I think, is acutely, Ukrainian leadership is acutely aware that um, and I, I, it seems to me, looking at them, that they feel pressure to show progress. Like not that anyone's pressuring them, but that they they want to continue to demonstrate progress and stay in the news so that people won't forget about them and move on. And that's you know partially from experience, like nine years ago that they had. So um, there's a lot of different factors, and I think in the the months ahead, all the way up to November of 24, we're going to start to see different types of political influences coming here in a stronger way on on battlefield decisions and potentially battlefield outcomes. So as we begin to think about the next stage to come as to you know where the offensive may go, where the talks around these negotiations may go, one big issue that we know has been the subject of substantial discussion both in policy circles, government circles, and particularly among kind of the commentariat outside of government, is the question of security assurances. What sort of arrangements does Ukraine need to feel secure enough that it might be able to, you know, feel secure enough against future Russian incursions that it might be able to, con- well, may even be able to consider anything like a ceasefire, anything along those lines, um, but really to secure Ukraine generally moving forward, um, no matter what arrangement may be reached with Russia, because of the assumption that Russia is very likely to try something like this again down the road. Eric, this is a topic you've done a lot of thinking about and talking about. Tell us where we are in talks in this regard, to to the extent we can tell, both on the European side, the American side, and how far that is from where we need to get, in your view, you know, how big is how much work is left to be done in terms of getting to yes 
on the necessary elements of what it seems like the Ukrainians will need in this regard. Sure. So, you know, there was a lot of attention uh, a few months ago at, in the run-up to the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, about whether or not Ukraine was going to receive an invitation to join NATO. Obviously, they've they wanted to join NATO for a long time. They see that as the ultimate security guarantee, sort of the the platinum standard of a of an ironclad uh, guarantee. And, you know, for reasons that I think are fairly obvious, you know, the allies were not willing to proceed uh, with moving down the path towards NATO membership for Ukraine in a time of war, given that, you know, that could very well embroil NATO in, in a direct uh, war with Russia in order to uphold the commitments uh, in Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, where again, an attack on one is an attack on all and so on and so forth. So, you know, the debate about NATO um, leading up to the Vilnius summit sort of distracted from this other conversation that was happening, not as an alternative, um, but as sort of an interim bridging solution, which culminated in the, the um, decision by the leaders of the G7, as well as the EU to sign a joint declaration of support for Ukraine, uh, which basically, you know, was this kind of umbrella you know, multilateral document that pledged sort of to put into words and to formalize commitments to Ukraine's long-term security. And so you've heard since the beginning of this invasion, you know, we're with it, you know, with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Um, but there's been real questions about what that actually means. And the G7 declaration was sort of the first, you know, pen to paper effort to say, you know, we're developing a framework by which we are going to kind of lock in these longer term uh, security commitments and obligations to Ukraine. What the G7 declaration did was set off a process of bilateral negotiations where each of the signatories, plus the additional 20 some odd countries that have since joined the document, each of the signatories will separately and in coordination with one another, negotiate a set of concrete you know, specific bilateral commitments to Ukraine, you know, in the United States, we're talking about something that is likely to look a little bit like uh, the U.S. Memorandum of Understanding with Israel, where, you know, there's kind of greater detail and it has a little greater kind of political heft as an agreement to show, you know, kind of the directionality of U.S. policy, where, you know, there's kind of a collective understanding between Ukraine and its partners about what its future force needs to look like. So not just the force they're fighting with now, but when you're talking three, five, even 10 years out from now, what kind of force will Ukraine need uh, to defend its land and to deter future Russian attack? And then matching those future force requirements against what the allies can reasonably uh, supply. And, you know, again, this this, the joint declaration that's underpinning this whole thing talked about defense industrial cooperation. It talked about cyber intelligence, you know, broader resilience efforts, um, along with sort of the economic support Ukraine is going to need for its recovery. So I do see the conversation moving in a fundamentally kind of new direction with the G7 declaration and with the ongoing U.S.-Ukraine negotiations over this, you know, probable memorandum of understanding and basically, we're kind of settling in for, you know, a protracted war in which we're going to need to structure a predictable pipeline of support and make sure that we have um, the stockpiles we need to keep supplying Ukraine, which means, 
you know, making sure that we have contracts in place with defense producers in order to get the production lines, you know, going that are going to need to ramp up ammunition production and so on and so forth in the coming years and make sure that that's in a much more structured framework. I also think that that actually helps with the conversation with Congress, where there have been some, I would say, reasonable gripes about the lack of strategy and the inability to predict when the administration was going to come again to Congress and ask for more money. And this kind of lurching between, you know, from one supplemental budget to another, I understand why it was done early in the invasion, because there was a need for emergency support. But transitioning from that model of ad hoc emergency support to something that's more predictable and built into the budget and gives Congress a sense of where the United States government thinks, you know, our support needs to go and showing that there's a real plan, you know, underlying it for for building up the Ukrainian force of the future. I think that that can be a credible interim arrangement uh, for Ukraine until the NATO question can kind of be resolved, which is probably going to be contingent on, you know, some war termination scenario, or at least kind of an armistice and a clear, you know, cessation of hostilities, you know, so this interim security arrangement, plus, I would also add the process for Ukraine's accession to the European Union. Ukraine was granted candidate status last June. By the end of this year, uh, EU leaders are going to make a decision about whether to open up formal negotiations, and all signs seem to point to yes there. And so when you knit these two things together, the multilateral security arrangement and the EU accession process, you know, you start to show a pathway to victory. And the victory is Ukraine gets ever more closely knitted into institutional Europe and the West, which has been its goal for, you know, decades, uh, has this sort of predictable pipeline uh, for security assistance that's backed not only by the United States, but all these other signatories and can sort of hold the line, you know, in the meantime. So we have a sense about what those arrangements might look like. But before we go, because we're, we're getting close to the end of our time, I want to talk a little bit about where we think this conflict and this debate is likely to go uh, over the next few months. We've seen both the slow progression on the front of the counteroffensive, progress, but slow progress. We heard President Zelensky, I think, as recently as earlier this week, you know, say they intend to still take Bakhmut back. Um, from Russian hands uh, and, and continue to make progress on this line. Um, but we've also seen the conflict push out into other fronts. Um, Dara, you've already mentioned you know, the occasional drone strikes that have moved into Soviet Union. Um, you know, there are rumors of that ha- becoming more of a common effort and a more widespread effort. We know this attackum system that's being provided is something with more long-range capability. Part of Part of the appeal and also the risk of it is that it could allow for broader reach into Russia, although that'll be subject to some degrees agree, agreements and negotiations between the Americans and the Ukrainians, I'm sure. And then most more recently, we've actually seen attack on Russian assets outside of Russia and outside of Ukraine. Um, we've seen at least credible reports that uh, Ukrainian special forces teams were involved in attacks on Wagner positions in the Sudan. What does this tell us about the direction this conflict is going in? Is it like Where is it likely to go? Uh, and what other avenues of expressions are likely to find in the next several months, both in terms of the battleground and then politically as well? What should we look for in the political you know, system that is facilitating, supporting, and in some ways trying to end this conflict? 
Dara, let me start with you on, on the actual conflict, what to look for in the next you know six to 12 months in the actual fighting arenas, wherever they may be. And then Eric, I'll come to you to close on the, the political arena. Sure. So what I'm looking for um, in the months ahead is uh, primarily on the ground. And again, this this goes back to the point I made earlier. Um, I don't know the status of ammunition stockpiles that the Ukrainians are working with and the Russians are working with. Um, and that's going to determine how much territorial change that we're going to see on the ground um, through the end of this year. But you know, I'm, I'm watching. You know, the Ukrainians, even if they're not making forward progress, they are taking several cuts at very important Russian capabilities on the ground. So, you know, they are able to strike Russian positions with pretty accurate counter-battery fire. Some of the PGMs that they do have, whether that's Excalibur, HIMARS, uh, you know, they, they are taking cuts at them. And, um, you know, as, as much as I would like to say that, oh, the Russians are on the verge of cracking, uh, they are not even though they are exhausted um, and tired and they are trying to rotate forces um, into this challenged area to make up for that, they are still holding. Um, so I think we need to be you know, realistic about what Russian resilience looks like and they're able to hold these positions under difficult conditions on their own side. If progress on the ground um, comes to a halt for whatever reason. Um, and I, th- I think it will be driven by munitions, not necessarily weather as the primary determinant. Um, I think the next course of action that we'll start to see from the Russians and the Ukrainians will be a reliance on these longer range strikes. The Russians have um, had a f- fairly reduced strike schedule um, this summer since the mutiny. And that's an option that they have to scale that up moving forward into the winter. Um, I don't know if they're going to try to strike Ukrainian critical infrastructure again to try to knock out their electricity. That's they, they just did that a few days ago when Zelensky was in New York. The Ukrainians as well, I think if there is not, you know, for uh, operational reasons, they can't press forward on the ground. I think we might see more of these type of long range strikes as well, whether it's Storm Shadow or Attackums if they get Attackums. So that's that's what I'm looking for. Um, through the winter and, and until both sides have restocked a little bit. And we'll see what they do, both of them, um, to try to make more limited pushes. Eric, what about on the political front? What, what are the big pushes, the big milestones? What should we be looking for? And what are your predictions to what we might see in the next few months? Well, I do think you know we're heading into a difficult political year. And that's primarily because of you know our looming election and what's likely going to be, you know, a really (laughs) divisive campaign where Ukraine is going to feature quite a bit, uh, assuming that former President Trump is, you know, continues his trajectory to be the Republican nominee. Um, So I think there's going to continue to be a lot of uncertainty about the directionality of U.S. policy, which again gets back to this earlier conversation about the importance of kind of structuring and locking down some kind of commitment, ideally with congressional support, uh, for the for the long term strategy, but the politics in Ukraine is also going to get tough. You know, Ukraine was was supposed to have uh, an electoral cycle, first parliamentary elections um, next month, and then a presidential election in March of 2024. Obviously, the parliamentary elections are not going to happen legally right now under martial law. Uh, elections can't occur. Uh, so the question is whether you know there's going to start to be a a domestic kind of pressure on Zelensky to have an election. 
there's not that pressure right now um, because, you know, there's sort of a very, very broad political and societal consensus that, you know, win the war first and then have elections. But again, if the counteroffensive peters out a bit and there's a sustained period of kind of lower intensity war and kind of uncertainty about the ability to mount another major counteroffensive um, with the goal of liberating substantial new territory, that conversation could start to, to change uh, in Ukraine. And then and it becomes very complicated because, again, you know, when you think about the pathway to an election and lifting martial law, not the day before the election, but, you know, six months before in order to have, you know, the political, you know, system go back to normal and have kind of the free campaigning and, you know, media that's going to be necessary to have a real competition, democratic competition, you know, Zelensky going to be worried about a significant population outflow, frankly, because men from 18 to, I think, 65 have been barred from leaving the country. So the millions, up to 9 million refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees in Europe are primarily women and children. And so, you know, presumably a lot of men will want to uh, reunite with their families. And so, again, that directly impacts manpower um, for, for the Ukrainian armed forces and so it's very complicated. And again, you've still got an active war with hundreds of thousands of Russian troops, you know, on Ukrainian territory, presumably continuing to shell Ukrainian, you know, positions and cities and so on and so forth. So, so it becomes very complicated. And so far, I haven't seen a clear, you know, Western policy on that question of an election. I think, you know, the United States and Europe are kind of waiting to see how things happen and trying to avoid applying their own pressure and letting the Ukrainians decide themselves when it's appropriate to have an election and when they might need to kind of loosen some of the security measures that, again, have been in place for completely justifiable reasons uh, since the start of the invasion. Well, that gives us a number of things to keep an eye out for in the months to come. But for the time being, we are out of time. Eric Tramella, Dara Masico, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Hal and produced by Ian and Wright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.